The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk Talking practice and process with inspiring playwrights and screenwriters. This is the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Writer-to-writer conversations all about practice, process and projects. As I find out more about my guests' writing life and chat about some of their career highlights, I hope you'll find the conversation inspiring and encouraging for your writing journey. Coming up... My guest today is Norman Young, a Chinese-Canadian writer for whom the use of language takes on a whole new meaning. As we discuss Norman's body of work, he explains how he uses magical realism in his work to encourage empathy through dialogue, blurring the lines of fantasy and reality in order to break down language barriers. It's a technique that's been present in all of his work, from his debut play Pu'er, which examines the challenges of language within a modern immigrant family, all the way through to his hip-hop-inspired feature, Rouds, which he's currently working on. And of course, we talk all things theory, following the publication of his multi-award-winning play earlier this year. I really uh, would love for us to listen, talk, learn, communicate, cooperate more. And, you know, we can't cooperate alone. It requires at least one other person for communication to happen. Whether there's Cantonese in my writing or not, I still, I think, want the characters to desire communication. The Writer's Toolkit Podcast with Paul Kalbergi. Born in Guangzhou, China, Norman Young was raised in East Vancouver. Today, he divides his time between LA and Toronto, where his work has been widely produced. Norman is perhaps best known for his play Theory, which premiered at Tarragon Theatre in Toronto and received its US premiere with Mosaic Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. Winner of the Voden Prize in 2015 and nominated for the Carol Bolt Award in 2019, the play stimulates discussion both on and off stage in a thrilling and oh-so-timely piece of theatre that examines liberalism and freedom of speech. His first full-length play, Pu'er, received four Dora Award nominations from the Toronto Alliance for the Performing Arts, including Outstanding New Play, and was a finalist for the Voden Prize. Other plays and performance pieces include The Zoonotic Story for Stratford Festival and the National Arts Centre. I Know I'm Supposed to Love You with Touchstone Theatre and his new play, Eunuch Ex-Pirate, which he's writing as playwright-in-residence at Toronto's Outside the March. Norman has also been a member of playwright and creator units at the Tarragon Theatre, Fujen Theatre Company, Tapestry Opera and Canadian Stage. And I'm thrilled to sit down and chat with him now. Norman, welcome to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. Really, it is. It's 4 p.m. right now here in New Zealand. Are you in Vancouver right now? At this time, I am. Uh, I'm in my hometown of Vancouver. And I was a, a little worried that um, looking at your schedule of available times, that if I chose my nine o'clock time here, I wasn't checking the you know time zone yeah, yeah, to yeah, see yeah. what you were. I was wondering if, oh, is that getting really late? Because <laughs> it's it's midnight in Toronto where I'm actually based, where I live. Yes. Um, and so I'm always cognizant of um, it being too late elsewhere. Sure. I'm always very aware of that thinking, oh gosh, my, my time zone makes it very difficult for the rest of the world. So I have to kind of make myself available at, you know, three o'clock in the morning. But I think there's enough overlap generally at either end of the day to, to make it work. Yes, yes, it worked out for us. That's for sure. Absolutely. So are you normally an evening writer, a nighttime writer? Or do you have a time of day when you sit down to, to work best? Well, I am sadly 
a super late night writer into early mornings. Okay. And uh, I say sadly only because it's a it's an odd schedule that it does change mm. uh, depending on if I have to cram in some rewrites for let's say a production that's uh, rehearsing soon, opening soon, or going to camera. Sure. Uh, then that that throws my schedule in a different position. But generally, I am not. Uh, wake up early and start writing at eight in the morning, seven in the morning. I know some writers do. No, yeah, I yeah. tend to uh, start getting it going, like really getting locked into it mm. uh, when everyone is asleep. Okay. As, I, I know that's not odd for many writers are like that also. No. Uh, but I know that uh, due to my nocturnal schedule, I sometimes feel like I'm a night shift worker. And, yeah. you know, that's a, actually a common common employment um, uh, structure for yeah. many people in the world is to work late at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to be on that schedule. I think um, parenting and that kind of writer's schedule don't really go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, you know, having to kind of be up early for children and the school run and all that kind of stuff makes it kind of difficult to keep those hours. Yeah. I'm naturally at my most creative in the middle of the night and at nighttime. And, um, you know, the idea of sitting down at the end of the day when the world is still and no one's requiring anything of me to pour myself a little glass of whatever and sit and kind of immerse in the world, that's when I would naturally like to write. Yeah. But inevitably, yeah. my writing time is kind of between nine and two during school hours. Mm-hmm. So I'm always very aware of the clock and thinking I can only really be in this space and in this creative zone until 2.30. So recently I took myself away on a little writer's retreat. Yeah. It wasn't to an organized, um, in an organized place. I just got a cabin by the beach and purposely unplugged to have that three days of not having to think what time is it? Who else is demanding something of me? That sounds lovely. Mm. I could just, you know, work around the clock or whenever I felt, you know, inspired to do so without having to return to the real world. So that was so, so valuable. I also feel from what you've uh, described that we share a similar approach to our writing, which I think many writers do in that even though our hours might not be the same, Mm. it is a certain stillness that we uh, feel uh, best for our writing, our process. And uh, for and, and as you mentioned, then for you know early in the yeah, day yeah, when yeah. the kids are at school is when you can finally have that quiet space for you to do your writing. And for me, yes, it's late at night when uh, no one's emailing, yep. uh, the streets are quiet, and there's nothing else I ca- to distract me. Really, I don't. I need not be anywhere because there's nothing going on. It's late at night, and most right. people are asleep in my part of the world. Um, and it's that stillness yeah, yeah, that yeah. feels really. Uh, it's a good focus for me. And um, yeah, so I, I know I said I, I introduced that whole thing about my writing schedule as a sadly thing, as if I wanted to change it, which I kind of do sometimes. I would like to change that schedule. But then there's also learning to embrace who you are as a human being and your own inner clock. Right. Um, and as a creator, that sometimes, you know, we are who we are as a creative person. And if we're most creative and and do our best work at whatever hours of the day, then, you know, there's something that uh, maybe that's naturally who we are sometimes. Yeah. I don't, certainly not eight, seven, eight billion people, you know, run on the same that's right. circadian rhythms, you know? That's right. That's right. It's yeah. about finding that time that works for you, isn't it? And um, if your schedule allows you to write at that time, then then perfect. How are you with that, Norman? Are you okay to grab time here and there, or do you need focused schedule time um it's both and so i guess um over my my career thus far i uh, some people might say wow norman you seem to be a really productive person and yeah i guess i i've i've been 
productive. I guess that could be, you know, describing me accurately sometimes, but it does not translate to discipline. And I know that there are so many great writers, they treat it like a nine to five. Mm. And uh, I believe it was Timothy Findlay who said this. I I heard him say this after one of his plays when he was on stage doing a talkback. He said that at five o'clock, even at mid-sentence, he'll put the pen down. And and it's that kind of great discipline that I wish I had, but I do not. And I guess I've I've learned to be who I am and it still works for me. So as much as I would like to be more disciplined and I can work towards, of course, we can all improve and we naturally change our processes as we, you Mm. know, as our, as Mm. we go along in our life. But I, I wish for more discipline, but I fall back into getting it done however I can. And especially if there's a big deadline coming, that's when I go into a rather obsessive writing mode where my eating pattern and sleeping pattern kind of go out the window because I have to finish this draft and I want to finish this draft. and I don't want to get off that track. Uh, It is not the healthiest approach, I admit. And that is something for me to consider for my um, well-being. Certainly, it's not the healthiest approach, but also um, just for maybe to change up my writing process to see if there is a more beneficial way. Mm. I, I do recognize that there are many writers like you who have responsibilities that I, I currently don't have. I, I don't have kids that need my attention. If when I have kids, I'm sure a certain type of discipline will be imposed because that's it has yeah. to be that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Right now, I, I do have the privilege of going by my own means yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah, enjoy it, enjoy it while you can. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I've seen it around me with all my friends and their their young families. That yes, it's uh, your responsibilities and priorities definitely get made for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Now, as a as a collector of typewriters myself, I'm a, a big advocate of kind of analog writing and unplugged writing. And so I was so excited to read that you approach your first drafts with a big crystal ballpoint pen in hand on hole punched lined paper. That was lovely to read. Talk to me about your approach there, Norman. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that detail because uh, I'm not sure how many uh, writers nowadays, especially if they're uh, younger, meaning growing up with a laptop. I don't know how many still use a uh, uh, pen and ink. And for me, it's, I like to have a physical tactile approach yeah. or connection to the words. I, I, I picked this up from uh, a little blurb from an album record, a music record uh, that Douglas Copeland wrote um, uh, some notes to. I think I'm getting it right. Uh, it, regardless, it was Douglas Copeland who mentioned this in something. Yeah. And he said he prefers writing by hand because he says he's a lazy writer. Right. Writing by hand takes effort. Mm. And so to expend the least effort, his mind tends to work more concisely. Okay. And the words come more concisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope I'm not misquoting him, but that but that has resonated uh, with me in the like 20 years that I read that little blurb. Yeah. Um, and it made me think, yes, I could see that too. Not, not so much for myself in terms of it comes out. Well, it does come out more concisely for me, I think. There was something about the physical effort of writing with pen yes. that I think naturally makes the brain maybe want to think more succinctly. Mm. But one easy way to support that case is the delete button of keyboards. Yes is not my best friend for the first draft or two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my first drafts uh, are way too long, Yeah, but rightly so, because I'm getting all my ideas out there 
and there will be more drafts for to delete then. Yes. Um, I, I don't want to prematurely delete thoughts. No. It's all about that kind of gestation period, isn't it? And getting that brain dump of not limiting yourself to formatted script, but a pouring of those thoughts and ideas. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Fully agreed. And and with that delete button, um, especially with an early draft, there is a whole lot of uh, trying to find the right words there you are and then just erasing it and also there's no record of your thought once you've deleted it yeah yeah unless you've just saved different drafts but still um when i write by my first drafts by pen it's still there yeah yeah i do cross things out with what just a line uh with a pen so it actually still exists and sometimes that old thought that i crossed out i actually go back to it later and think oh yeah, yeah i i crossed it out but it's actually i'm bringing it back absolutely and i'm glad it exists on the page so I could still refer to it. And there's a satisfaction, isn't there, in seeing your progression stack up as a physical page count, that the weight of the page is in your hand. There's something about that. Um, Agreed. And and I wonder, uh, are, are, you in, are you in any way suggesting, which I feel very deeply, uh, <laughs> writing by hand has a big romantic writerly feel to it? Well, yes. And so I not for my drafting. I can't draft by hand. I love that you can. I just bought myself a new fountain pen. Mm. Um, and I, so I love keeping my journals and notebooks and every single day. I'm a big list maker. My, my notebook that sits next to me on my desk is a, just a constant streaming to-do list that I, you know, rattle ideas off on and kind of park things there. And that's all by hand, of course. Yeah. But I can't write fast enough to be able to draft by hand because my ideas come too fast. Mm. So I can do morning pages or, you know, um, a stream of conscious kind of free writing by hand, which I love doing because my hand doesn't have to keep up. It's just writing whatever it can capture during that time, as long as my hand keeps moving. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I can't physically form the letters fast enough to draft anything that I'd be able to re- you know, translate later. Um, so I use a typewriter for all my first drafts because I like that feel of the keys, the response of the keys. So I'm not formatting. Mm-hmm. It's still just a stream of story. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll separate action and stage directions from, from dialogue, but I won't format anything that resembles you know, final draft or a script. Yeah. And I won't always type character names just to be able to speed up the process. But what I what I really love about drafting on a typewriter is if I'm thinking about formatting dialogue, I'm suddenly a writer sat at a desk working on a document. Yeah. If I kind of allow myself to capture dialogue as a stream of conscious, suddenly it's it still exists as a live conversation. It's a live dialogue. And I'm tuning into that and the words of the characters rather than thinking about how to format them on the page. So I'm just literally kind of, you know, dialogue, dialogue, dialogue return dialogue 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 return i'm just capturing this thing as i'm hearing it and feeling it yep. without formatting that sounds incredible and and i i do have uh, my own little romance with typewriters from when i was uh, young when i was a kid and i used yep. a typewriter but everything you've just described about your joy and the organic approach with your typewriter is i think how i feel with writing by pen for my first drafts. Yeah. It's a it, it's a different experience of writing, certainly. And it just flows, right? It flows yeah. in a different way That's right. than word processing does. I think however you can find that connection with the story and stay in that moment rather than being so far removed that you're in your room at your desk creating a document. Yeah. You know, for me it's about how can I stay engaged in this story? And sometimes that's fragmented across different mediums. So I'll be driving around in my car and if the characters talk to me there, yep. I'll reach for my 
my my mobile phone and open the voice recorder app and just start having that conversation let the characters speak while i'm driving and mm-hmm. capture it there and i'll park that and email it to myself or whatever and then i'll get home and i'll scribble post-it notes and stick them on my desk and there'll be bits of mm-hmm. so everything kind of comes together in this fragmented collage of dialogue and action and scene ideas and the printed page from my typewriter i can you know i like to have those 90 pages or whatever that i can then take to a coffee shop and have that moment with a pen and a highlighter and strike through things but mm-hmm. still as you said earlier preserve that as the first draft mm-hmm. to return mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. later if I, if i want to you mentioned as well about the transcription process mm-hmm. going from that stage to you know opening final draft and starting you know work on a script so much happens in that transcription process you almost jump a draft you almost jump a second draft and get to, you know, something more final a little bit sooner, I think. Yep. I, I fully agree. I, I, I feel you and I have similar, uh, some similar approaches to our processes. Mm. My first draft, PS, uh, uh, for my screenplays, it goes straight into final draft, uh, okay. for the first draft, uh, because of the formatting of screenplays. I just find it easier to, to see it right. in a screenplay format. Uh, but with my plays, I try to always, I have deviated from my process a little bit sometimes, uh, due to time crunch. Mm. Uh, but when I have the time, I do my first drafts for plays by uh, paper and pen and ink, uh, just a big pen. Yeah. I mean, that's my, uh, you always, that's what I rely on is that big pen just out of habit. But after that first draft written by pen, it's not, it's not legible to anyone, no. just to me. Right. And so I can't turn that, it's, it's got, it's really messy. And I can't share that with anyone, a dramaturg or anyone. It's also, I wouldn't want to because it's so new. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's not for ju- anyone's judgment, but my own so far, because it's way too early to be shared. Or it's also, to be honest, for me, a first draft for me is too early to receive notes on. Yeah. Cause I already know all the mistakes. And of course, they're going to, uh, I'd like to hear more refined mistakes of mine yeah. in a, a, maybe the second, third draft. But for the first one, it's got so many holes. Mm. It's for me. Mm. Uh, and when I transcribe it uh, I, I, into word processing, that becomes a draft that I'm able to share because it's legible. I already have uh, addressed some of the holes that I've seen. It's ready to be shared in a legible manner. Yes. But that first printed draft, the word processed draft, yeah. It yeah. might seem like draft one because it's the first time I can share it, but it's actually like draft two because, as you've mentioned, I feel like it traverses, my process traverses a massive transformation from first draft, which is handwritten, into first typed draft, yeah. which is really the second draft. Yeah. I think of it as like crossing the Rubicon because it's like once I transfer over from handwritten into computer process a word processing i actually never return back to handwriting for that play anymore yeah it's pure word processing from draft two onward So when I hit a writing roadblock, I usually turn to my immersive writing practices, looking for physical entry points to my story and ways that I can approach the world of the story or enter the world of the story from my own reality. Um, And I talk a lot about that in the book and those practices that I use there. I was fascinated to hear about your approach. Talk to me about your shower solutions, Norman. Mm, Yes, yes. I discovered this for myself about 10 years ago, where... Um, when I'm really stuck on a scene, which is all the time, <laughs> um, I will sit there to just think about it. And then I'll eventually 
drift down in my seat until I'm pretty much just slouched on my seat. And then I transport myself to a sofa where that's when I'm almost prostrate because I'm like, I just kind of like melt into the furniture just sitting there for an hour or more just thinking about the idea that often leads to a successful solution. A successful creative solution is just thinking hard, like deep, deep consideration is all it is. But then there are those times where the the writing block, just sitting there is not helping. So uh, I uh, going for a bike ride often helps a solo bike ride, Uh, walking around pacing helps just to change up the physical state of my mind and body. But then I realized that uh, when I went for a shower, that those solutions would come within that shower, within 10, 15 minutes or however long I'm in the shower. Uh, And I do take long showers. Sometimes it's because I am actually thinking of the writing issues. It's right at the end of the shower. Somehow, usually, I don't know, I guess it's when I'm like massaging my scalp with shampoo or rinsing it out, that the solution comes to me, almost like an epiphany. I love that. And I, I, I think that's because for me, I am actually invigorating my brain. Mm. I'm actually like, you know, stirring up the blood in the veins and arteries up there and, 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 and send, I think, sending blood to my brain or whatever it is. Even just a massage of the scalp is a soothing thing and invigorating. The water is invigorating. So it's changing my physical state that takes me out of that funk, mm. that immediate funk of the writing problem. Yeah. Uh, and this has happened to me so many times that I get um, writing solutions while showering that I sometimes now, when I'm stuck, I will just go for a shower. That might sound superstitious, I don't know, but there we go, habit ritual. Hey, whatever works. Mm-hmm. I love that, that you're massaging those ideas kind of into your into your brain and kind of um, w- almost watering a watering a plant, you're watering your inner creative. It does sound like that uh, to me. Yeah, absolutely. It works and I do recommend it to anyone who, uh, to at least give it a try and you know, it might actually work for another, another artist out there. Yeah, absolutely. The conversation continues after these words from our sponsors. The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Okay, let's talk about theory, Norman. The play boldly tackles themes that in today's culture feel highly charged at the very least. Um, It takes on liberalism, what it means to be progressive, and the fear of speaking out should you have opposing viewpoints. Um, To quote a line from the play, how can we talk to each other if we're not allowed to say anything? Is freedom of speech the overriding issue at the heart of the play? Perhaps. Um, First, thank you so much for your support uh, of ordering my book. No, not at all. I'm I'm thrilled to add it to my library. That's really nice of you. Thank you for that. And that is one angle to it, what you've just said about Mm. the free speech. And I'm only pausing because, indeed, theory has a lot of ideas that it wrestles with. It's really about the protagonist, uh, Isabel, who is a 30-year-old film theory professor who has progressive values. And she implements a a discussion board for her film theory class Mm. uh, to share ideas and continue talking uh, beyond the classroom. She 
wants to give voice to the voiceless as uh, there are many people who don't want to speak up in class because they're shy or for whatever reason, they don't want to speak in front of a hundred people in this lecture hall. Also, there's uh, she, she does not want to monitor it because she wants them to speak freely and monitor things themselves. She, uh, she respects them as young adults. Hmm. A mysterious student takes advantage of that and tests her liberal values by posting um, odd videos and messages that increasingly get threatening and dangerous, especially when targeted towards Isabel and her marriage to Lee. Uh, Isabel is white, Lee is black, and uh, their marriage, uh, their relationship is suddenly tossed into areas they've never had to deal with before due to this mysterious student. And so when I first wrote this, uh, the first draft in 2009, the world was quite different, at least in my part of the world in, in North America. Free speech was more of a liberal value. And then along the way to where we have been in the past handful of years or several years, uh, maybe a handful of years, uh, free speech is now closely associated with conservative values. Right. And I wanted to keep Isabel a progressive character. Mm. But when freedom of speech has gone through such a massive flip, of where it sits on the political spectrum, I really had to, my revisions were very challenging to keep Isabel a progressively minded person. And so uh, one way of uh, illustrating this shift is to say, Isabel started in 2009 as a, a character who believed in freedom of speech and then grew into uh, believing in freedom of thought and then now is I'd like to characterize her as um, giving voice to the voiceless. That's really interesting. Yes. So so uh, it was challenging to. It's it's due to keeping up with the zeitgeist. Yeah. That rewriting theory was tricky. Yeah. Because our society has gone through so much evolution in a short space. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, it required me to calibrate the lead characters where they sit mm. freedom of thought that's it's really interesting you just said about freedom of thought versus freedom of speech and you know in a time when we're talking about cancel culture as well which i just think is so dangerous you know we're trying to amplify marginalized voices cancel culture sometimes to my mind has the opposite effect you know in serving almost as a, a kind of gagging order you know for the anxious or self-conscious for fear of being disagreed with shot down you know bullied or harassed online um so it's quite a confronting piece, isn't it? In, in, in a sense that it kind of forces many of us to hold a, a mirror kind of up, up to ourselves and think about how we wrestle with these ideas and what they mean for each mm-hmm. of us. And thank you for uh, what you've just said, because that, that I feel that segues into what, uh, my response right. to my pausing response a few minutes earlier about when you, yeah, when you were um, asking me what the main, yeah. main theme of theory might be. I, uh, my focus of it wasn't so much about freedom of speech. It's more about dialogue, listening to other people, learning from them. And within that requires empathy. Mm, yes. And I feel yeah. we are at a time now where, yes, we are uh, reckoning and trying to conjure more empathy yeah. out of us which I believe is certainly good yeah. for humanity, is more empathy 
But I think empathy requires dialogue and conversation and listening and learning, not just listening, but learning from it. And that is, I think, closer to the real stuff of the play theory, which is Isabel learns from listening to her students who challenge her on the discussion board because many of them do want a moderator. And she learns the most from her partner her wife, Lee, Mm. because they've never had to reckon with these issues before. This mysterious student instigated in a dangerous way to attack their relationship or to cast her values in doubt. As if she were complicit in his messages, some of which are racist. Um, so 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 it deals with that about hearing someone speak, learning from it, speaking yourself and hoping someone else will listen and learn. That dialogue is pretty much um, the key thing that my character, the lead character, Isabel, would like in this play, Mm. is more dialogue among people so we can listen and learn from each other, which, ironically, she doesn't do all the time. So she learns to take her own medicine of listening and learning. learning, Mm -hmm. Agreed, (laughs) agreed, yes. Yeah. So could you speak a little to the development of the character of Lee, in particular working with the actor Audrey Dwyer? From from what I've read, it seems like she was instrumental in guiding the development of the character, Mm -hmm. almost as a diversity editor. Uh, Well, Lee, the partner of Isabel, uh, started out as a white man and a boyfriend. Uh, This would be its earliest phase from like 2009 till 2010. Uh, After that Summer Works production, uh, when I would continue to develop um, theory, my dramaturge at that time, uh, Shirley Berry, uh, she suggested to me, Norman, your lead character, Isabel, professes progressiveness, but what if she lived a life that is more progressive Mm. than simply professing it? Have you thought about Isabel being married to a woman. And I thought that's a really great idea that she lives in a progressive, what we can, you know, was considered a more progressive uh, life uh, to be in a same sex relationship, same sex marriage. And because Birth of a Nation, the film, which has so much racism in it towards black people and African Americans during the Civil War, that's a topic of it. um, That's part of this, uh, the film, uh, part of the film theory syllabus in this, in theory. that's when I figured that, yes, you know, this is a, th- that racism can translate into Isabel's life. Yeah. Uh, and I also, I always knew like, like Isabel would be married to a non-white person because I just wanted more, um, diversity in sure. my casts. I yeah. do write my characters to be diverse. Yes. And so, uh, Lee became a black woman. Yeah. And, uh, so some years would go on with more drafts written. And then it would be, uh, maybe around 2018, Audrey Dwyer, a wonderful actor, writer, uh, yeah, creator, everything. She's a, a really generous, smart soul who, um, during our workshop for theory, one of its drafts, um, she, said to me that Lee, by the way, Audrey was going to play Lee. Mm. She said she didn't feel that Lee's reactions or lack thereof to Isabel's transgressions uh, regarding race uh, really made sense to the where to where these characters were going in that draft. So she offered to sit, to sit down with me and uh, the director, Esther Jun, uh, to go through it. 
sharing her insight and experience as a black woman to how she feels Lee would handle certain moments in a relationship yeah. with a white uh, female uh, in their marriage. Right. And so that was extremely generous of Audrey. Um, and in the workshop context, it was very, very much what was required. Oh gosh, invaluable. Uh, from, for, for me to learn. Yeah. yeah. In a workshop, you know, that's the whole point yeah, is, yeah, yeah. uh, please anyone tell me everything because, uh, we're here to thank you for helping me make it better, uh, with, by sharing whatever you're comfortable sharing. And so, um, she helped guide Lee in a direction that, um, is just a better, a better character, better written character. Yeah. Yes. That's fantastic. How important would you say it? It is that we as writers consider working with, you know, either a sensitivity reader or a diversity editor. Mm-hmm. And at what stage do you think we should think about doing that? I think it's quite important. Should we have, for instance, have the freedom in a first draft to play around on the page and kind of get it all out there and then... Is it at the first sharing at the point at which you want to send it to someone, you get some eyes on it at that point? Yeah, I can, I, I can only speak for myself. And I feel that I'm, I, I, I'm ready to share the draft with someone in that context yeah. of sensitivity and diversity and uh, equity and um, inclusion, all these lenses that we necessarily have to, you know, give, give attention to. Yeah. I think in an early part, uh, but not my very first draft. Mm. Again, I don't share my very first draft drafts because it's just way too early. Yes. I would say around the same time that I would share it with a dramaturge, let's say draft two, draft three, and then throughout yeah. the rewrites henceforth, it might be for the next many for years, yes. that I would consult someone with that context for sensitivity. Uh, also, of course, though, to write the very first draft with that in mind, yeah. I think it's incumbent yeah. upon the writer to actually at least pay attention to it while they're writing and if that writer is going to, well, completely neglect any of those thoughts, then it might go in an irresponsible direction yeah. or not. Or maybe they'll, t- you know, address it later or maybe never address it. And that's their prerogative prerogative as a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, it might not uh, sit well with the public uh, at some point. So I do feel, yes, bringing in a person to help with that lens at an early stage works for me. Yeah. Early stage. Yeah. But the play certainly encourages discussion. And that leads me on to your choice of setting in terms of heightened drama. I think an academic debate is already a kind of melting pot of opinions and an arena for passionate debate and, you know, curiosity. The added dimension of the kind of thriller aspect of the uh, the hate posts really kind of throws a, a cat amongst the pigeons and dials up the pressure even more. I just think that that's a, a genius arena in which to tell this story. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I do feel um, initial drafts of it uh, over 10 years ago, I was very resistant to make it a genre piece. And and then somewhere along the way, I leaned heavier into a thriller aspect of it. And I think that was because uh, due to my own growth um, as an artist to no longer shun genre. Yes. Uh, I used to, yeah, when I was younger and uh, self-admittedly more snobbish, about um, art and what genre, how genre works in the world of art. Mm. Uh, I had a snobbish approach, which I've long, long dismantled by now and have a great appreciation for genres and all the wonderful myriad aspects 
uh, and forms that art can take. Yes. So genre can be done artfully. Of yeah. course it can be. And when I started realizing that and appreciating that, I felt comfortable giving theory more of a thriller genre packaging. Okay, kind of leading into that. Mm-hmm. So looking back on your 10-year journey with the play, mm-hmm. it's had a long development history from the very first self-produced production in 2010 at the Summerworks Festival in Toronto yeah. to the Tarragon Theatre World premiere in 2018 and most recently the 2019 American premiere with Mosaic Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. Not forgetting the published playtext, which is available now from Playwrights Canada Press. Mm-hmm. How thrilling is it to look back and see the journey and just how far it's come? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm still so amazed and proud and feel very fortunate to have worked with, uh, well, innumerable, an innumerable amount of talented artists, uh, throughout all of these years. Again, I wrote the first draft in 2009. So, uh, I know that at least 100 different people have worked on this uh, in various iterations. Yeah productions, readings, workshops, it's gone through such a long development period. I I, I just feel so blessed that a company would want to put it on. There's money involved. It's part of their seasons. The talented personnel, artists, crew, everyone that they, you know, uh, bring to the fold to mount this script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It awes me all the time. Anytime that any of my works are presented, by other people, yes. Uh, I kind of feel like, wow, thanks so much for believing in or finding value in this thing I wrote. Um, you know, like like they, they want to put it on, and that makes me feel very thankful. The overriding theme in all of your work is language and its potential or power, if you like, to divide and or bring together. Let's talk first about your Transformations project, The Zoonotic Story, which is available to watch on YouTube. What came across so profoundly to me while watching it was the fact that while no words are exchanged that are directly understood by either character, the pain, trauma, hate and fatigue that must have been felt for a lifetime are immediately understood. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for giving it uh, your time to watch and your thought and giving it some thought. Um, that piece in particular, uh, yeah, the zoonotic story uh, was a commission uh, by Stratford Festival and National Arts Centre in Canada. It was made in the heart of the pandemic, which it's still going on. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was like September 2020 that I started writing it. Yeah. And in it, an elderly Chinese person encounters a middle-aged or 40-year-old person at a bus stop, and they have an encounter. Uh, there's violence involved, and they manage to speak the same language uh, due to thanks to magical realism, which is definitely something that uh, occurs and reoccurs in my. It will for the rest of my career, I'm sure. I use magical realism to have characters of different languages yes. speak the same language. Yes. And hate against Asians was big on my mind at that time. It still is big on my mind. Yeah, the specter of the pandemic was a part of it. In that. Um, Asians in around the world, actually, Asian people around the world were being attacked because of the virus, the pandemic, coronavirus. And um, my rage was pretty, uh, I wasn't really hiding anything, I guess. I was pretty didactic with it about racism. Let's just get to the point. That's what it is. China is one of the big, big targets. 
of this whole pandemic yeah. where people have pointed fingers at China and Chinese yeah. people. Yeah. And I've written a play about that. Yeah. And is there scope to develop that further, to expand that? Uh, you know, I've actually, what you've experienced now, how it exists is a short, uh, it's really like six minutes long. It could be done even shorter uh, if, uh, by some companies, I guess, if they staged it, maybe five minutes. I don't expect to expand that. Okay. But I have thought of it being like one chapter that if I decide to focus on that character's family, the one who yes. uh, who gets attacked, the yes. Chinese character. The grandchildren I mentioned. And... Yeah, their grandchildren and a daughter. It's so theatrical just just thinking about it because I look because the whole thing I think exists if it was to play out in real time that whole scene at the bus stop would probably last what at 30 seconds a minute and you know he would keep walking or whatever but it's all of those thoughts and feelings playing out in slow motion while while time pauses and that translation exists that doesn't really exist you know that 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 magic that you play with and doing that on a bigger scale and kind of bookending it with you know I don't know I, I'm writing it for you here I apologize but no, not at all me meeting them at the bus stop and then you know closing with them back at the bus stop and that window of the play being the time in between to explore those themes and ideas of those subconscious or overt prejudices whatever um that's really exciting yeah you know hearing thank you for those thoughts because uh you've yeah you've given me uh some ideas and a reading of it from you that I never really thought about before, about the slowing down of time. And I'm not against the idea of expanding this into uh, other chapters of the family and their experiences during this pandemic as mm. Chinese Canadians or Chinese Americans, these characters. Zoonotic story could be one scene out of a larger play that I uh, will maybe one day write. I don't feel like I'll write it uh, just yet. I don't know. I, maybe I don't really want to write another pandemic thing while we're still in it. Mm. I think I got it out there with Zoonotic zoonotic story but down the road of course like this pandemic is part of our history right what you've described about the slowing down of time where a whole scene that could take like a minute or less in real life mm. is now like a five minute theatrical drama i could use that as a stylistic um uh, motif right. throughout other scenes with yeah, the yeah, family yeah. and that could be it yeah so thank you for the inspiration actually yeah. so i'm really thankful for you sharing that thanks yeah <laughs> If we're going to bring that up to the other projects of mine that you've mentioned, yeah. I've, I, I, I was born in China, so I'm an immigrant to Canada. Mm. And I, so I've been, a, I've been aware of that my entire life. And I know from my own family and the community, etc., that language is one of those big things that keeps some immigrants from being fully accepted in this country yeah. and in America. Yeah. And it's an it's some kind of alienating factor that there are a lot of Chinese people who've been in Canada for decades who don't speak English, and there are re there are reasons for that in terms of like there's a lot of Chinese media available, and right. uh, it's a big community where they can conduct business and daily life in a Chinese language. Okay, and so that uh, all this adds to a certain kind of uh, I guess I guess it adds to the racism that's uh, that many Chinese people face is not having the same English skills yeah. that other people would expect. Yeah. And so I deal with language a lot because of my own relationship to it, my own limitations with Cantonese, which is a big regret of mine uh, that I speak Cantonese poorly. Yeah. And so I reckon with that in many of my plays uh, in terms of the alienating, uniting and dividing aspects of language skills. 
Yes, so interesting. Actually, when I was reading about your first play, Pu'er, about an immigrant family and the dynamic of a parent-child relationship divided by a language barrier, mm-hmm. what it immediately made me think of was that gorgeous scene in Come From Away when the bus driver points to a verse in a passenger's Bible and makes a human connection mm-hmm. that almost transcends language. In, in that moment, it's like kindness is really the only language that matters. Yeah, yeah. The, the moments like that, are in in art and in real life are really beautiful and special actually and uh i think we could see more of those because it's very cinematic and dramatic and all the good things of art is and poetic right it's poetry what you've just described but with my mom and dad who have limited english skills um yes i speak cantonese poorly that's a whole other story since they've been using ipads for the past mm, two or three years now I actually use Google Translate with them all the time. Yeah. And it's really fun actually because uh they're 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 keen on learning more about how to use an iPad and you know it's wonder you know they're in their 70s and now they're able to communicate finally with their family and friends yes. in China, New Zealand, Australia uh when it used to be just the phone every few months or so. Now it's like daily yeah. chatter and so there's a wonderful internet working for them and I can sh- I can type in some words on Google Translate in English. It comes up in can uh, in in Chinese. Yeah, and they yeah. know what I'm trying to express. Now I don't rely on it. Like we don't talk by typing to each other. No, but when there are certain words that I don't know how to translate uh, in Cantonese, I type. Yeah, I do Google Translate, and they know exactly what I'm saying. There's parallels there as well, though, isn't there? Between Pu'er, where the son and the the parents have that barrier. In in your work there with I know I'm supposed to love you, which is a love letter to your future child, your potential future child. The fact that you chose to do that as a monologue, again, it's a one-way conversation. There's no reply from from the child, of course. So those same themes continuing to play out. Yes, yes. I, I actually never thought of it in that way that you just mentioned, that it's still uh, somewhat incomplete yeah. communication. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's happening all over again, right? You're talking to your child and they're not replying. Mm-hmm, it's that, mm-hmm. that same dynamic. Thank you for uh, giving thought to all of this, because it makes me think, I, I don't know, when I'm dead and whatever body of work I've left behind. What it resonates. Yeah. That's testament to, you, to your writing and your storytelling, Norman. It's, right. it's engaging, it's engrossing, and I, I get it and I want more. Yeah, well, thank you for saying <laughs> that um and and i guess maybe people could see my body of work one day and probably say yeah that that guy norman young that artist often dealt with language and communication we've seen it throughout his entire career i'm telling you now i'll probably deal with language issues my entire career in my work um and that actually also lends to theory in some way about communication where i really uh would love for us to listen talk learn communicate cooperate more and you know we can't cooperate alone it requires at least one other person for communication to happen whether there's cantonese in my writing or not i still i think want the characters to desire communication Ah, well just briefly if you could speak about your screenplay project because it's the same thing there right but hip-hop is the language absolutely yes yes uh actually what's on my plate this very moment is um a new screenplay i'm I'm writing called rowds uh like rowdy rowds um and it is not autobiographical but heavily based on my real experiences as a teenager uh hip-hop is a huge part of my life but uh, not just rap but hip-hop culture uh graffiti 
breakdancing, DJing, rapping. As a graffiti writer myself, who hasn't been able to make time for graffiti in a, in a while because I, I'm busy writing now, uh, but when I was um, you know painting every few days for years as a as a young young kid, etc., even as an adult. My love for hip hop is so deep, as is my love for East Vancouver, right. uh, the side of Vancouver that is heavily traditionally. I shouldn't say traditionally because traditionally it's a uh, it's Coast Salish people land. Uh, so fast forward, yeah, thousands of years until recently, where uh, immigrants like me who've come to East Vancouver uh, are yeah often immigrants, working class or poor, wrong side of yeah, the tracks yeah. is often how we East Vancouverites have been described. So these are things I'm proud of. East Van and hip hop culture and Rouds is kind of a maybe Romare. Eric Romare directed a hip-hop East Vancouver set in the 1990s right, film. Right. It might be a bit more observational, yeah, yeah, yeah. a bit more easy breezy. Uh, there is a story, of course, but I'm, I'm not sure I want it to be plot-oriented. Okay. Uh, it's not going okay. in that direction. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a bit more of like a slice of life, observational. I'm heavily influenced by okay. Roma. Uh, of recent years, uh, where it's a beautiful black and white film of quite an observational, understated uh, approach into okay. a community. Yeah, so that's where Rouds is wow. going with a heavy, heavy hip hop uh, heartbeat. And so you, you've been afforded a residency to work on this project. So I am, I'm, I'm one of a nice, talented, really talented artists that I'm working with uh, as, as, they, as fellow uh, participants in uh, Lowborough Lake Writers Retreat uh, put on by Crows Theatre and Mongrel Media. Did you apply based on developing this particular project or were you selected as an artist and then put forward this piece to work on? Uh, I, I applied with a submission for this piece called Rouds. Okay. And this will happen in December where, yeah, it's a nice retreat for us uh, by the lake. Uh, where Sounds we'll, beautiful. Yeah, we'll dive into each other's work to help each other out as fellow artists. Um, yeah, and I'm really excited for that. And um, I'm glad I have a deadline for it because that's the only yeah. way I finish anything is uh, finish any drafts is when I have a hard deadline. So I am certainly in the thick of writing. And that time to unplug from the real world and just immerse yourself in, in writing and sharing of work. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, final scene. Mm -hmm. Just a few questions to close with while the credits roll. Yes. What would one of your earliest writing memories be? Uh, some story about an adventure in the Amazon rainforest. I was probably grade three. It was a writing exercise for school. Yeah. It was probably not a great story. But <laughs> <laughs> I was eight. I was proud of it. Norman, who are, who are some of the writers who've inspired your writing the most? I actually have a list for this. Okay. I'll go through it. I prepared because I always, this question, um, yeah, yeah. always requires thought from, from me. Kafka, Joyce, Chekhov, Brecht. Beckett, Ionesco, Pinter, Mamet, Shepard, Michelle Tremblay, David Henry Wong, Young Jean Lee, uh, and in recent years, uh, some plays that have really moved me artistically yeah. and emotionally uh, include Harlem Duet by Janet Sears, uh, Heisenberg by Simon Stevens, Viet Gone by Kui Gwyn, uh, The Flick by Annie Baker, The Wolves by Sarah Delap, and Birds of a Kind by Wajdi Muad. Wow, gosh, what a list. Thank, thank you for giving it so much thought and um, thank you for some great recommendations as well. Yeah, yeah. Other than the Writer's Toolkit, what was the last book that you read? 
my mind for the last half a year has been completely wrapped in uh, history, writing, uh, reading history, researching history uh, of the Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty, specifically about uh, Zheng He, okay. uh, the great eunuch admiral of the Ming Dynasty who did his uh, seven voyages around the uh, South China Seas and Indian Ocean, and Qing Shi uh, from the 1700s into the 1800s, who is known as the most successful pirate in history. These are two of the four lead characters in my other very recent project that I'm in the thick of, uh, Eunuch X-Pirate, uh, that I'm writing as a playwright-in-residence at Outside the March in Toronto. So I've been completely immersed in reading about some of the big dynasties of China. I love that. Yeah, Chinese history, basically, is what I've been reading a lot of. Oh, when something interests you that much and you want to do all that deep dive and research, yes. that's exciting to me. As a, mm. And I'll buy everything and read everything that I can on, on that moment in history. Yeah, yeah. If you could spend time with any character from any of your works, who would it be and what would you do? Uh, actually, Zheng He, who I just mentioned. Uh, or Qing Shi, the pirate. Because uh, they, they're, they're, they're real people. Yeah. Four centuries apart. But um, yeah. I would travel the seas with them uh, and simply observe them uh, doing their uh, admiraling right. <laughs> and then with Ching Shi doing her pirating, you know, on the high seas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, before I really let you go, can you leave us with your top tip for maintaining a healthy writing practice? I would say there's always another draft. So you don't have to get it perfect in the draft you're on right now because you can always touch, you're supposed to improve upon it in the next draft so don't worry about it this is advice to myself no need to get it perfect in this draft yeah because you know there are many more drafts coming it's a building process i'm learning to be take it easier on myself as a writer i i stress out less now with each draft because i know i can make it better with the next draft i love that and that's the journey that's the writing journey brilliantly put norman thank you so much for your time Paul, thank you so much. It was a real joy to speak with you and also to learn about you. And I'll be getting the Writer's Toolkit ASAP. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for having me here. Thanks, Norman. Joy, 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 joy. Norman Young, what a joy it was to connect virtually and discover more about your writing journey. I know our fellow writers will take away as much from your insight and wisdom as I will. Thank you. Next time on the Writer's Toolkit podcast. I say Kiora to Kiwi screenwriter, playwright and fellow teaching artist Catherine Burnett. The fact that it was about to be on stage, it was very easy to go back to my play and do a polish. And I loved it. You know, that's a really lovely deadline to have. Generally, I think I always advise people to do that, like find a deadline of some sort, because it's just so useful. Otherwise, um, it's, as you say, so easy not to write. Time can just roll by. With credits on shows including The Cul-de-Sac, Fresh Eggs and most recently My Life is Murder, Catherine is one of the busiest screenwriters in New Zealand. I've enjoyed getting to know her since arriving on these shows and I can't wait to share our conversation. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Paul Kalbergi and you'll find links for everything mentioned in this episode in the show notes below too. Until next time, stay inspired. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and share the link with your friends. This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. This 
This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes.